Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Morning Shot Uncut, where we give you our uncut opinion on pretty much everything. So strap yourself in, because today we feel like being controversial. So Ramon, I've been thinking about this a lot of late. And you know, the topic of regime change has come about in South Africa. And this is the hot topic now with the ANZ and the EFF. And I've been thinking, I have a regime change idea of my own. And that is, if minority groups want to have a country of their own where their voices are heard, there is an easy fix for us. And you know what? It will only take between 15 and 20 years to actually realize the plan. And all they need to do is every single minority needs to have 10 kids. That's it. Because their 4 million become 40 million, which would then become the majority, and therefore they could elect regime change. Now, I know some of you dear viewers may be going, 15 to 20 years, geez, that's a long time. ANC has been in power for longer than that. So had we all started this sooner, hey, we wouldn't be in this mess right now. So all I can say is, chuck away that birth control and off you go, chaps. What do you think of my plan, Ramon? I'm sensing some EFF vibes. Judith Malema famously said, yeah, I have 10 kids. The state will look after them. Uh, I don't think that's what you are sort of referencing. You don't want the state to look Not after Not at all the kids of minorities. So when you talk about minorities, you mean uh, Indians, coloreds, and whites. Is that true? Yeah. Well, the Indians are already getting freaky and they don't believe in this whole one to two child policy that for some reason, Western families seem to have invested themselves in. And I was thinking about this, you know, and I was, I was speaking to friends and I was like, you know, what kind of family do you come from? And it's, it's very interesting that the generation before our parents all came from like six to nine family households, right? And it's really weird because where where did we go from there through to like almost the one child policy? We seem to have adopted like the Chinese model where it's like one to two kids. But our ancestors all came from households of like six to eight kids. I don't know how many your your parents were, but certainly well, when I speak to my grandmother, she had these massive families, and then we don't. Well, I mean, the context is vastly different. So back in the day, you used to have children, uh, ostensibly because most of them would die before the age of five. And then uh, the Great War of, well, 1914 to 1918, and also World War Two had a huge effect on, on sort of global population and talking about uh, children mine is with me in my room i'm a single parent today so apologies if you do hear some rumblings from a child during the course of this particular podcast but what really happens is affluence right once people get affluent they have fewer and fewer children the priorities change from he's gonna look after me in my old age to well i have a pension i have money i have freedom and therefore, the more affluent you get, the less children you seem to have. And that's what minorities are facing right here in South Africa. Whereas the poorer black majority, for the most part, don't have that mindset. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's just weird if you think about it. Because there seems to have come a time where in the Western psyche, families were reduced. And obviously, now we've seen that play out in certain Western societies. We see that even in the US, the idea of having a kid in full, and this is one kid, turns people off the concept completely. They just don't want to. They'll say, well, you know, having kids not for me. 
Um, I don't know. So it's it's really it's really weird that if you look at it from a modern demographic point of view, the idea of having kids just seems to be a no-no. And those that do have kids, the mm-hmm. guarding principle they always give you is that of economics. It's like, well, I'll have one or two because that's what I can afford. This never used to be a feature in societies before us. No, that that I can fully agree with you right there. But also, it has not sort of undermine what has happened you know since since uh feminism came on since the the two the two income household became a reality i mean all these things the social changes that severely impacted the family structure and the ability for children i mean not for children for people to have children so now it's basically you live within your means it's almost like an economic calculation rather than any other sort of calculation And and it happens to to us as well. I've got two children of my own and I look at the bills every month and yeah, it's expensive. Um, that's not the only thing I look at at the end of the month though. Of course, uh, my kids are great. They're the best thing I've ever done in my life. But I can understand why some people might think that children equals spending money. That's the wrong metric, but it is, especially in the 21st century, the sort of defining metric by what do I earn and how much do I spend on things that sort of are necessary so it's a variety of of, of concepts mm. flowing into one sort of determination yeah i'd agree i'd agree with all of that but the, you know the principle here being that when the economics of the situation reach a point where the economics are actually affecting the politics then all of a sudden the economics are like oh well why don't we have political change you don't have the numbers my friend you don't have the numbers because you didn't create the relevant voice. You didn't create the next generation that would imbibe your values. And you only had like one or two kids that just ran around and did their own thing. And, you know, to a large degree, you allowed the state to raise them. So they have the state's voice. They don't have your voice. So it's it's just when you look at that as a whole, there's another concept in play here. And it's one of what I would call and I've recently read a book on this called Durable Trades. It's like, because people have created this one or two child family, the child, according to them, has to become like the next doctor, right? And they've got to become like a systems analyst, or they've got to be like a, a chartered accountant, or they must sit down and, you know, found the next Apple or Microsoft. But the actual trades of life, the actual things that, have been here for millennia, get neglected because they're not considered to be sexy enough for that one prodigal child. Now, in the past, you wouldn't have had that because what you would have had is about five to ten kids. Some of your kids would have been tradies. You know, they would have been middle to lower income earners. Maybe a couple of your kids did really well and became the senior managers and the leader of ESCOM. I don't know, whatever. But the point of the matter is they weren't all destined to be half flyers but if you think about it in the modern environment because we've only got that like one or two chance we feel the need to ensure that that child becomes the next prodigy regardless because that's our only option we don't have numbers on our side now so we have to almost like force it and in the forcing of it two things are happening the first is that the durable trades things like carpentry how to farm, raise horses, 
go out there. It's just survival ethics, just the durable trades that people needed to know for centuries. Metalworking, those things are disappearing. And the people that we that are trying to be forced into the next generation of half flyers are becoming rather entitled. And they seem to think, well, I've been raised to become the prince, if you will, because that's how everybody views themselves. You know, I'm, I'm the hero in my story. I've been raised to be the prince. And therefore, if I'm not the prince, like something went wrong with society. Why am I not king? You know, and you can see this playing out now in Western politics. Well, I think that's also a very interesting point. I mean, I think the fact that there are sort of two income households and, and fewer children gives rise to workism in essence right if you are always seen to be a special or unique or you know you only had one or two siblings at most you were given a lot more attention you were told that you were destined for great things and great things means getting a college degree or working as a consultant or doing like these white collar jobs as much as possible i think there does come a sense that you know if you don't reach those lofty heights set by yourself your parents your society there is a lot of resentment that comes through it and the resentment is played out in terms of sort of work well it's not my fault it's like society's structured in a way that only white males systematic can right it's systematic it's yeah it's systematic. the system is designed to keep me down like, yeah so, like, so in essence you, you're finding these atomized individuals wanting to become sort of youtubers i mean the irony we are sort of youtubers it's not our main job though don't don't worry but you want but but the the atomization of society back from you know building suburbs to get away from blacks in the inner cities in america like flowing from that you get all these other consequences that people didn't really take into account and you can see i'm sorry about that and as you can see it has real and direct consequences in the world right now and especially in south africa but if you say byron the demographics is destiny which i agree with you to some extent another alternative way is rather than for every africana indian and colored family to have 10 children is basically just to create the enclave systems out there that allows other minorities from across the world to come into south africa and make south africa a place for their destiny and their descendants which I would agree with. And that's why very jokingly, a couple of months ago, we made a comment even on our own shows. And we said, maybe it's time to invite the Dutch back to recolonize South Africa. Do you remember that? It was a funny joke. No one found it funny apart from us. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where we laughed at our own joke. But um, there is actually a real part of that. And that is that in Holland at the moment, as we know, the farmers are having a rather hard time. There's been protests this week over the the, the farming bans and restrictions that are being put in place by the Dutch government. And, you know, we are reminded that people came to Africa in the first place because Africa has this amazing thing called land. And we've got a lot of it. And we've got a lot of free land. And to a large degree, South Africa, we've got a lot of people in South Africa, but actually we're not an overpopulated country. I mean, just go for a drive anywhere. There's still large sections of land that are undeveloped that can be used for something useful. And I suppose that's actually the story of the EFF, right? Is that, what we need to do is we need to free up the land and give it to people. The only difference is that we believe you should give title deeds to people and allow them to own that asset. And the EFF's like, no, nah, no, nah, state must own it. So that's where we kind of disagree on that. But I think we agree with them on the fact that the land does equal wealth, as in it is an asset. It can be used for betterment and for trade and all the other stuff that goes with it. But we believe that wealth should benefit the individual, not the state. So there is still a large sections of 
land in South Africa that can be used for economic purposes. You know, it can be used to farm on, create a factory or create a soda farm or whatever you want to do. You know, raise a cattle ranch. Like, But, you know, it's, it's, it's peculiar to me because I've been thinking about this quite a lot of recent. Did you know that in the 1940s, over 85% of American food was created by small holdings? wasn't actually created by large farms. Yeah, no, I didn't know. The The industrial food era is, is relatively brand new. It's like 30, 40 years old, maximum. That's And that's it. And now they're saying that like all beef, beef is a good example because Americans use a shitload of beef with all their patties and steaks and whatever else. Uh, much like South Africans, we do love our beef. God best belief. And if you're a vegan, fuck off. But anyway, the... Idea here is obviously that if you look at all the beef in the US, it's actually only produced by four main companies. Four companies control all of the beef supply for the whole of the US, one of the largest populations on the planet. I mean, that's shocking. Absolutely shocking. Yeah, well, I mean, that's also the irony of America, right? And this is what people don't seem to understand. Free markets create hierarchies. I'm not saying America is a free market, but it's a freer market than most of the world. At the end of the day, once you have corporatization, once you have economies of scale and efficiencies, those who get to the top will remain at the top. And that's why the food supply in America is actually, it's not insecure in terms of there's not enough food it's insecure in terms of there are big failure points because very few companies produce most of the food which is fine for the most part less people go hungry more people get fat which is not a great thing we're not we are very fat phobic on this particular podcast but the failure points are really high whereas in in netherlands as far as i understand the corporate structure of food is actually not as great there are more, more farmers yeah, there's more farmers per capita in the Netherlands producing more food consumed by the Dutch people. I know the same applies to Switzerland, same applies to France to a large degree. A lot of Europe is like that, actually. You've got family farms producing not the majority of the food, but a substantial element of the food. Whereas America, it's not. And if you wish to sort of copy that model in South Africa, I think it can work really, really well. And the only way to do that is to get the Dutch farmers here through an enclave system where they don't have to worry about fucking nitrogen emissions because really they're killing farming to protect the environment people <laughs> like really like think about that for, for a second they're killing farming to protect the environment but the farmers create the environment right that is all that's all very true and so actually that's actually the the whole point of you know what i'm saying is that if you think about it, and again, I've been thinking about this a lot of late. You know, a lot of people talk to me about what the the other relevant demographics in South Africa could possibly be doing to society. Look at all the foreign immigration from other parts of Africa, and it's destroying, it's destroying Swani and Gauteng and whatever. And I've been thinking a lot, like, why are South Africans so obsessed what the other ethnic groups are doing? Like, let them do it create your own destiny it's funny that to a large degree as a country this is actually exactly what our forefathers did that's what the food trekkers did they came to south africa to create a destiny of their own where are we with our own destiny like we don't we don't create our own destiny we we see our destiny as intrinsically linked to everyone else 
So if, it's almost like if they fuck up, we fuck up. And it's like, but that's not actually how societies have worked traditionally. Like we always say, create the enclave society. Well, what does that actually mean? What does it mean in reality? It means create your community, worry about yourself, create something that's sustainable for yourself. If the others all want to go to shit, how is that any different from being a Brit and watching France go to crap? And all you do is you go, oh, well, that's the French, right? So, I mean, if the French want to go to crap, that's their problem. Like, but as Brits, we want to create a different destiny. That's how societies have worked for millennia, apart from in the modern environment. We don't do that anymore. It's, it's intrinsically weird because you can tie this even in with the, the mentality of Zimbabwe, right? Zimbabwe failed. Ah, South Africa will fail. Why? Because their failure is our failure. Like, why aren't we just doing our own thing? And in the process of worrying about the failures of others, we almost model or copy their failures. And I think, to me, this is really what enshrines the unipolar world, right? The idea of the unipolar world. Like, we'll just all have each other's failures. Why not? Like, yeah, I'll just copy what you did. Where is the idea of the self-sustained community that you can create for yourself you worry about your community of people that share your values and ideals like it's, it's gone man but it's only like a relatively recent gone and i do wonder what caused the disappearance of it and i do wonder like most hard right wingers whether or not it's the decline in the family like i say like there is an easy option to actually fix all of this have 10 kids raise them all up in a small holding, teach more to use a gun, they homeschool them. Like there is an answer, but it's not an easy one. And I think that's where the, where the whole thing falls down. People want ease. They don't want to, to do the hard work. So I, I don't know. I think this is a bit asked backwards. So the thing about politics, right? Politics is basically the consequence of pre-existing conditions. So, when we say that, oh, look, Saudi Arabia is a theocracy, yes, it is, but it, it was that two, three hundred years ago. Now we've just sort of legitimized it through a political frame, which didn't exist 50 years ago, as an example. The same applies in South Africa. So I think for, for the most part, South Africa, sorry about that. Hey. So I think for the most part, South Africa, the constitution was imposed on us as a nation. Like, no one asked for it, right? No one asked for it. It was, was imposed on us. And we're going to see that it is breaking apart before our very eyes. The very concept of a sort of constitutional democracy in South Africa is not working out extremely well. So, just like it took 200 years for the Industrial Revolution to actually be called the Industrial Revolution, what we're seeing now in South Africa is this notion that, well, the nation state doesn't really serve us. It's going to break apart in time to come. And it might take decades right it might take a century or two we don't really know but for the most part any political label on a country or on a society is always post facto the elements were in it way before the label was actually given to it like feminism was only coined in the 60s but the roots of it were found in the 1890s 1900s a world war one already for the most part and those different contexts gives rise to different incentive structures. So for now, the incentive structure is stay at home, get a social grant, and burn down the school if you feel a bit unhappy. Like that makes the most sense for people who have short-term uh, time preferences. But sooner or later, people are going to realize, and I think they are realizing it as we speak now, that the more longer-term time preferences is going to be we can't actually rely on anyone. 
this 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 feature of constitutional democracy is a bit of a joke. So we'll need to have longer time frames and find ways to actually reach it. The Afrikaners are there. The Indians are there. The Anglos are not. Most black tribes aren't. And the Coloreds are definitely not there either. But I think they will come around to the idea. I think so too. I mean, we're already starting to see kind of ideas like that emerging. I mean, let's not remember we have Peter Marius in the last two weeks saying that about all the invasion to his province, like he actually took ownership of his province and said, this is my province, you're invading it, get out. And you can see almost a degree of nationalism that's actually segmented to a province. We've not really seen that in, in, a, in a strong way before, and we are now. You know where else we're seeing that? And it's such a breath of fresh air. Sorry for interrupting. It's great. You know, we've seen the exact same thing now with the Zulu monarch, and we're seeing it in their territories. They're like, this is our territory. You come here with your ideas, we chuck you out. And it's great, because what it does is it imbibes their exact culture and identity. And as a person who wants to live in a multipolar world, which Ramaphosa says he wants to live in that multipolar world too, I want to see those communities do really well. I would love to visit the Zulu monarch, spend a day with them in their culture. I don't want them to imbibe my culture. I want to imbibe their culture. I want to go see what it's like. But I want to be able to leave there and go back to my culture as to who my people are and what my people are imbibe. But I want to actually stick on that topic for one second because I'm going to ask you this question. What is our culture these days, apart from just consumerism? Uh, no, South Africa doesn't have a, a single culture. I mean, what we want is a multipolar South Africa, right? Not a multipolar world, through that. Let's start right here at home. So, I mean, our culture, uh, I'm an immigrant, right? So my wife is also an immigrant. Well, second generation. Our culture is, you know, have children, study hard, work hard, make good money, ensure that your children are comfortable enough to start a life of their own and basically ensure that uh, family life is is important and the extended family life is important as well uh, is there sort of any cultural aspects to that i'm not actually too sure i mean we do take um you know christian christian holidays very seriously and things like that but there's no sort of wider global not global not a wider cultural context that we fit neatly into for the lack of a better term. And I don't think any South African really can, unless you live a, sort of in a tribal area where there are certain cultural heritages that you do conform to. But for the average urban South African, I don't think there is such a thing as sort of a culture. I disagree. I'm glad you said that. Because actually, I think there is. I'm, I'm from the Anglo stock. My family have been in South Africa for four generations. I can very easily trace my culture. I can trace it to the Anglo-Boer War. I can trace it to people going around having to work on farms, having to work in mines. I can trace it to all of that. But I would ask you a simple question. In the majority of South Africans that you interact with, how many of them know anything about the Great Trek, the Four Trekkers, the battles, the Anglo-Dutch the Anglo, uh, War? How many of them know anything about these things? How many of them know anything about their ancestors and what their ancestors went through to give them the way of life that they have today? And the answer is, and I know this for a fact, the answer is like zero. They just, they're just not there because people don't almost want to know about what their forefathers went through to give them the country that there is today. It's kind of like they just go, well, we had apartheid and apartheid was bad and therefore 
everything that went before apartheid is like just wipe it away but in the process of doing that they have forgotten how they have got to where they are and in the process of forgetting how they got to where they are they are repeating the mistakes of the past because the mistakes of the past were made because of a set of circumstances if you don't understand the circumstances and the reasons why we got to where we got you will repeat it and very interestingly enough that's exactly what we see in modern south africa we are repeating the same mistakes of the past because we have forgotten them we have forgotten what our ancestors were who they were and to a degree rather than imbibe our own culture and to retake on the fuertrekker mentality like create your own environments create your own people imbibe your culture teach people about your history and where you came from rather than imbibe that almost national identity of your own people we have an answer for this you know what the answer is australia let's go sit on the beach in australia that will solve everything right and it's dumb it's just dumb I don't know, Byron. I think you, you 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 want too much from people. I mean, let's look, look at the facts, right? A lot of people are unemployed. Uh, poverty rates are skyrocketing all over it. That gives you a very different incentive structure, right? You don't care what happened, 100%. like your great grandparents and how they lived. You're worried about how you're going to eat tonight. So, I mean, how do I you agree. like like being poor? Like prevents you actually from saying, "Oh, my life is so great," compared to previous generations because you don't actually care at all about them right like you're worried about yourself it makes you inherently quite selfish i disagree entirely and i'll explain to you and when i explain to you i think you'll understand remember i spoke about this durable trades our people do not have durable trades there is a large amount of people that are unemployed because they have been brought up to be kings they have been brought up to be the next lawyer and chartered accountant you both know because we see these statistics what's the number one profession leaving the country chartered accountants right because they those positions are all being filled by bee and they these chartered accountants are getting good salaries abroad completely understand those individuals will sit there and say to you well you know i can't get a job because of my skin color so forth so forth in the past those jobs wouldn't have been an individual soil form of work they would have been able to do metal work leather work plumbing trades building construction they could have raised their own cattle farming electricity grids they would have been able to do all these things but we can't we don't have those durable trades Now why do I mention that? And that is because when a job becomes obsolete, the individual has nothing to fall back onto. There is no secondary profession or even a third profession that they can fall back on to generate income. There's no secondary job that they can do should they so need it because they don't have those skills. And you can't deny that it's very true. And how we are seeing that play out even now. I mean, I'm going to talk about my area. I'm sure your area is a little bit different in Gauteng. But certainly in the Eastern Cape, solar is a great example. I cannot get someone out to do solar because there aren't enough people to do it. There's not enough people that actually know how to deal with it and deal with the demand right now. 
Why? Because people haven't learned those trades. They've never been deemed to be valuable enough. Remember, like the trades used to be seen as like the lower person's job. And we don't do the lower person's job because we all want to be the kings. We want to be the kings of our future. And we are seeing this in the population overall. We are seeing it in employment rates. There are a lot of individuals I know, and I speak to these individuals, and I'm sure so do you. And we say to them, what do you do for a job? Oh, I'm unemployed. Okay, so what did you do? Well, I worked for a solar place. Why don't you start up your own solar company? Oh, well, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to. And that's really what it comes down to. They don't have the skill set or the mindset to be able to do it. Why? Because they never taught the durable trade of doing that. They were taught to follow the rules, obey the rules, become the king in your company, go be a chartered accountant, work for someone else, have a salary, pay your, pay your bond off and just live your life. And that's not really how society has worked for millennia. It's a relatively recent thing that has worked that way. And now that it's no longer working that way, they're looking at alternative places where they can go to in order to keep doing what they want to do. You may disagree with me. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I, I don't disagree with you, but I think the, the incentive structures of, of modernity are sort of played out in terms of hyper-specialization, right? If you are the best at whatever tax consultancy, you'll never be out of a job because you are like the best. You'll save companies or corporates millions of rands and they'll pay you like 5% of that to do that job. It, it's really a question of sort of jack of all trades versus master of one. I, I'm a sort of... Uh, a, a stack a talent stacker i like to do like various things then build it up together to make like sort of one person right so i mean for example i can do video videos i can edit i can do legal work i could do insurance work uh and i know how to make a mean tweet on twitter like those those are my different talents and all together they make me who i am give me a chartered you know make me a chartered accountant for a day i wouldn't know the first thing tell me to install the toilets or diy stuff i'm useless at all of those things but i mean at the end of the day this is not a, a problem i'm afraid byron that you or i or anyone will be able to sort of solve nothing we can in nothing we can. so like what are you trying to sh tell people are you trying to tell people that don't focus on university focus on trades and then your I'm life telling will be people that better. they should they should focus on a, a larger family and focus on on trades that actually matter I think that the reason that people want to focus on university is because of the one to two child policy. Okay, and it just makes sense. Like, why wouldn't you? You've only got one chance to get that one child to make the lottery. Like, it was never like that in the historical families. Like, you had lots of kids. One of them would do all right. And you hear that. You actually speak. Speak to your grandmother. Ask her. Like, why does your family have so many kids? And she'll be like, oh, my mom always just thought one of us would do okay. And the others would just, like, raise families and just do box down and stuff. And I, th I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, actually, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, focus on your culture, focus on your identity, have a large family, let some of them go do trades, let some of them do durable trades. Like, there's nothing mm. wrong with living that lifestyle. They don't all have to be kings and queens, right? That's that's the moral of the story. No, I mean, I agree with you there. So, I'm, I'm from a family of four, right? I got four siblings, well, three siblings rather, and uh, none of us were sort of like 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 you do feel that sort of almost like parental neglect. But it's not neglect. It's just like there's four of you just figure out shit on your own mm. nothing that has suited us for the most part i mean I, I ideally would like four children whether that's possible or not is a separate issue altogether but in essence you need to create a sort of like separate unit from you so not so no not one child is overtly special they're all sort of equally neglected <laughs>
and he's like such an ancient but none of you grew up in Tartal there did you none of you were sitting there on Twitter going oh, 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 the world hates me like you just knew that like you had to figure out your own way in life because as you say he had this quiet degree of neglect anyway growing up like but we don't have that in modern environments because of the one or two child policy like everybody just you know you're all special you're all mommy's little princess the problem is when they're not a princess in later life and they have to do like menial jobs and they don't even have a trade to fall back on and you like you said like you know if you went to university and you became a tax consultant you earn lots of money and I, I kind of smiled and i thought yeah that's kind of funny because that used to be the case the problem is market economies occur you know where where there's a lot of people that can do something you pay less for it I and mean, that's just that's basic adam smith principles of economics has been there since the industrial revolution like it's always been like that that we we've known this for hundreds of years yeah. lots of people can do something you pay less for it when only a small amount of people can do it you pay more for it but i, I think i have a solution though sorry to interrupt Aaron. i think i have a solution for you um i would bring back child labor not in like the material sense of like putting them at the bottom of a mine or something but children from the age of 10 or 12 need to work somehow right i'm not saying full-time he will get on like a house on fire <laughs> i'm not saying full-time i'm saying part-time work after school i mean let's be honest a lot of kids go to school they come back they watch netflix till the parents come home and then repeat make those people work right even if it's just around the neighborhood even if it's just like as a cashier part-time somewhere because i mean they will be really cheap but most importantly, they'll be learning skills on the go, right? I remember when I entered the workplace. I mean, I worked a little bit beforehand. I did like tutoring and like normal student jobs, sales, things like that. But when I entered the workplace, it was a bit of like a, a shock, you know, like seeing all these people I didn't know. We're supposed to sort of work together to finalize projects together. It was a bit of a, it was a learning curve, let's just say that. But if I was started working at like 12 years old, even part-time, like every second weekend, some afternoons, dealing with customers, dealing with stock, dealing with complaints, dealing with, I don't know, cash up, shit like that. I'm sure you'll get a far better sense of the work life than otherwise. So yeah, bring back child labor, like in a, in a controlled way. I'm not saying, you know, put them as like riot police people, but just like, like normal jobs that you can find. But the problem we have in South Africa is that labor is, and this is going to be controversial, labor is plentiful and relatively cheap. So the incentive for children to work is basically competition to the labor aristocracy. So, yeah, I don't know how we're going to implement that in a material way. Yeah, I agree. that. The, and remember, market forces, right? You've got lots of people willing to do so. You pay less for it. Lots of people are willing to do menial jobs because they don't have an education or a trade to fall back on. You know, they don't have any durable trades. But it's very interesting to watch people that do have durable trades now in South Africa. They earn a fortune. And their skills are like poached up by countries left, right, and center. You know, the jobs that people traditionally never wanted to do because they were rubbish are now the king, kings of the crop, you know, plumbers, electricians, you know, those kind of things. Like, but ironically, day, don't you think, sorry to interrupt again, don't you think, like for me, if I have daughters, I would want them to go to university. But if I had sons, I'll be like, do a trade. Because, I mean, we are sort of binary in this way as well, right? I mean, women are better academically and at doing sort of the same task over and over again, whereas men are much happier doing physical stuff. I used to be like that. Honestly, I used to be like that. And I, I'll tell you straight, I don't want any of my kids to go to university. I don't see the value. I've got a doctor's degree. I don't see the value. 
in my own degree, right? And I don't even use, you know, I don't even use the doctor title. It's a waste of a degree. And I've learned that over time. I've met many people with degrees and they're dumb as fuck. They're just stupid. And Elon Musk is very famous for having said, just because a man has a degree doesn't make him bright. <laughs> okay. And it's very true. I've met many people that are just dumb as shit and they've got master's degrees. I've met people that just got matric and they're smart as hell. They own businesses. The businesses are very productive. They make a lot of money. I don't think university is this be all catch all. And I am now of the opinion that every qualification at a university that is not required for the purpose of that profession should be scrapped. They should just be obliterated. A good example of that is like, okay, I know it's not a South African thing, but let's use the American example, gender studies. What job are you going to get with gender studies? Why is there even a degree? Like if you need a degree to become a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant, fine, go do those. But like, there was once upon a time, it was very famous in the UK, back when labor was still in charge. And the universities implemented a degree. It was actually in, in Derby. In Derby University implemented a degree in David Beckham. David Beckham. You know, that's what you studied. I, I Imagine going out there. I got a BA in David Beckham. Oh. Fuck off. You know, what the hell are you going to do with that? I mean, David Beckham's the world's largest tool. But... Why is that a degree? Why is that even a thing? You know, like, so we should just get rid of it. I don't want my kids to go to university and study like political science. They get to go learn to be a Marxist. Yay. You know, like. I mean, come to think about it. One of the most successful people I know used to be a tow truck driver. Like in his youth. Because that was the only thing. He grew up in Boxburg, relatively poor family, was a tow truck driver for I don't know, 10 years or whatever, learned a few skills in terms of becoming a mechanic, becoming a mechanic. And now he owns like whole fleets of trucks and does logistics and has exclusive contracts with the Volvo and the CDs to repair their trucks and whatever the case might be. This guy doesn't, I mean, if he's, if you, if you mention Plato to him, you think you're talking about a, a vegetable, right? The guy doesn't give a shit about theoretical stuff. Give him an engine and he will fix anything under the sun. And he's a really great guy, really, really smart in that way and, and really has a sort of open view of the world. What I find, Byron, and maybe this is something to talk about, is my degree maybe actually narrowed my focus in terms of what a business is or what a job is. Because I have these skills now thanks to my degree. But in actual fact, the things I learned out of my degree in terms of YouTube or editing or insurance or whatever the case might be, is actually far more engaging and exciting and meaningful than the stuff I learned within it. I'm glad you said that because for my degree, when I did my law degree, as everyone knows, we're lawyers by trade. When I did my law degree, I learned more about political arguing and even arguing my thought structures in the legal environment from my master's in theology than I ever did in law. Interestingly enough, my master's in theology made me a better lawyer because I actually learned a skill from that that no one ever taught me in law. And that was actually how to argue a point really strongly. Apologetics really helped me in law. Now, made me a much better lawyer. But historically, you wouldn't have had that because people would have had that skill anyway. They would have learned it at home, right? Rational reasoning, arguing, that kind of stuff. We don't learn those skills anymore. We learn to consume the 
education or the information that the schools give you to imbibe it and not to question it, right? Then you go to university and you imbibe that information and you digest it and you don't question it. But the whole principle of being a lawyer is to argue, right? I mean, that's the whole point of being a lawyer is to argue your point, to put it across within the confines of the law and to win your case. People can't do that anymore because they've lost those skills. So where exactly are they going to learn those skills? It ain't going to be the freaking university, is it? It's going to be life. It's going to be the durable trades, the actual engagement in life. And what does your degree really help you in learning those skills? Well, the answer is fuck all. And also, since we're in the digital revolution, if you want to learn something factually, which is what university is for the most part, you can learn it sort of online almost for free. I'm not saying universities are useless. I think, you know, if you want to become a doctor, I think it's good to have some sort of standardization uh, in terms of that. But what you do find, back to my previous point about half an hour ago, was that the standardization happens based on things that already exist, right? So the the health professions council arises because doctors already existed for hundreds of years and they already had standardization. Then the state took over it and created this overarching branch of government that sort of standardizes the test. So it's not longer, it's no longer about your reputation as a doctor. Now it's like whether you're credentialed or not. And sometimes those things aren't the same, right? You can have a lot of credential, like especially in law, you have a lot of credentialed lawyers who are registered with the legal practice council, whatever they're called. And they are just crooks and thieves and dumb, like Dalian Porfu, right? Like this is the caliber of the senior advocate in South Africa. The guy can't make an argument outside a wet paper bag. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, and it's, it's just so interesting to see because like you very rightly said, you know, you'd want your daughters to go to university. I'll be honest with you. I don't want mine to go to university at all. So well, if they choose. Know, but, if they choose. But I think it's difficult to find, for a woman to find work in a trade. I've never seen a female plumber, mate. <laughs> I agree. However, I must be honest and say maybe I'm chauvinistic and part of the patriarchy and part of the problem. I don't actually want my, my daughters to go to work. I'd quite like them to stay at home and be a mother and to raise, to raise their kids. And as long as they're married well and, you know, the husband's worth something, then I'd be more than happy with that. I don't feel the need to push my daughters down the career path. I don't think that's actually important for them, you know, and I want them to be able to be raised in the environment where they, they understand that they don't need me to tell them to become the next vet or doctor. If they choose to be a part-time vet or a part-time doctor or something, that's great. But there are other roles for a female to perform that are equally as valuable. And that's again, one of the things I'm talking about, like the, are jobs and professions that are still valuable to to the world you know one of those is being a mom raising your kids like staying at home and looking after your kids and i don't think that we should be selling all of our kids this this pop dream of you must all go become a chartered accountant i actually i actually think it's wrong uh, and that's part of what i'm talking about no, i actually actually fully agree with you there i mean when i say my daughters will go to university I mean, if they choose to be, but it'll only be in a hard science if they choose to actually follow a hard science. Um, but yeah, for the other parts, I, I fully agree with you. If they don't have to work, uh, that's absolutely perfect. I mean, I think life is a bit more tenuous if, if only one person works. Uh, then, you know, the winds of change sort of can impact the whole family as opposed to... to Durable trades, my work. friend. Should have They should be hedging the bets in the family. Like, it's just how it was. And I mean, we don't hedge bets in families anymore. 
I mean, if I if I had to come back and be reincarnated, I think what I would do is be a Toyota salesperson and, and built in with a mechanic. Mate, you're never gonna go out of fashion in Africa. <laughs> you can have money till the rest of your life. Easily. I actually saw the car sales the other day. Like they sold like a thousand, like a thousand Hiluxes a month in this country. A thousand. That's a lot of mechanical work. That's a lot of sales. And if you just did that, I think you would live a freaking good life. Not to worry about all those other yeah. things. Funny enough, one of the richest people in J-Bay is actually a Toyota salesman. True story. He actually owns the, the Toyota the Toyota dealer in uh, Humansdorp. And that guy's like, he's well known. He's like one of the richest guys there. The guys are minted. And the worst part about him is I spoke to him actually not that long ago. Maybe I should get him on the podcast and we have an interview with him. But uh, hey, he's really, he's really funny because he actually says to me, he nearly moved to Australia and his wife convinced him to stick around for a dad. And then he started up this Toyota dealership. And he, and he says to me now, he's actually sold cars up to 18 months in advance. He's sold cars that, aren't even, that don't even exist. They haven't even been made yet. And he's like, he just can't keep up with demand. If you go to a showroom, it's empty. Because literally every car's been sold. He's like, name name for him a job in South Africa where that where that happens. And you're like, yeah, that's not really a thing, is it? But it's it's interesting because again, I was you know a friend of mine. He owns a, an accountancy firm. They do business planning and financial planning, and we talk a lot about you know various things in South Africa. And um, he's also says he was also pointing out something to me the other day. And he's like, you know what? That, that the majority, the overall majority of people that he knows that leave South Africa are all people in kind of like what we would class as the professional class. In other words, they're all, they're all like the, the managers and, you know, the Karens at the shop and stuff like that. He says, overall, all the business owners he knows, the people with actual proper trades and the grafting people, you know, the people that actually own the places, he's like, they all tell him categorically they'd never leave because they live very good lifestyles. And this is actually what got me thinking about it, you know, it's like, and it's funny because we actually see that in the comments section of our videos, right? Whenever we make these flipping comments, they're all like, yeah, but I'm struggling and I can't get a job and this and this. And those are the people that always say they, they want to immigrate. It's always the the professional class that's like, why can't I be a tax consultant, you know? And that, that's what got me thinking about it, you know? It's, it's, so, it's so interesting to see. If you look in the white demographics of the country, just look at the, the statistics. Like, the actual demographics have been relatively stable now since, what, the 1970s, 1980s? Like, they've just done this. They haven't really done this. And yet those same individuals all want to be in the professional environment, and they all kind of imbibe this, like, you know, you must have these one to two childs, and everything is, is everything must be, like, really Anglinized. It must be very American and very European. And then those same individuals complain when, they don't get their own way because they don't have the numbers and their population just decreases. And that's why, you know, the crux of the story was maybe the way to create regime changes. Every, every minority have 10 kids. Don't train all your kids to, to be the Kings and Queens of the future. Maybe, you know, you had your bets, you allow some of them to do durable trades, actual things that have value you know, not a profession that could potentially go bust in the future, actually contribute to society and create your own enclaves. Like allow some of them just to be, you know, really good mothers and fathers and allow them to, to do something that's valuable. 
That's that would be my solution. And in that respect, I suppose I now have come full circle and sound like my grandfather. So grandfather, hope you pleased. I sound like you now. Yeah, our parents are always right. When you find that out when we get to their age. <laughs> yeah, I so. Yeah. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. If you wish to support the show in a material way, please become a member on Substack. That is the easiest way to support the show. And if you are a member, you do get the video portion of this particular podcast. But other than that, let us know in the comments on Substack at least what do you think of regime change possibilities in South Africa through intensive breeding uh, Ryan, uh, that's Byron's uh, words on mine and uh, we'll see you in the I next one say that. <laughs> cheers bye